everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Alright, so I'm just going to start by asking the question that I know that we're all asking this morning. Why are avocados so expensive? I know that's all of us were coming in. It is summertime. It should be cheap to make a nice bowl of guacamole. It is not cheap. What's the deal with avocados? And I'm happy to report after doing a deep dive into the mystery of the price of avocados, I know the answer this week. Would you, would you care to know the answer? Why? The, the answer is horticulture is why they are so expensive. Here's what it takes to grow an avocado. Avocados, if you can picture one in your head, are pretty, pretty heavy. They're a pretty dense type of fruit. And when they're growing, the, actual, the, the, the typical shoot of an avocado is actually super thin. So as avocados, when they're young, are starting to grow fruit, these big avocados they start to grow actually snap the whole plant in half and the plant just dies. Isn't that crazy? So if you want to grow an avocado, especially if you don't want to, if you want to do it the long route, what you do is for about the first 15 years, you just keep cutting off these avocados as they're growing to allow this tree to grow to where it's big enough where it can actually handle it. If you don't have 15 years to kill as you're snipping off avocados, the way that you do it is you take an avocado shoot, like here's where the fruit's going to start growing. You clip that off of the avocado tree you find a different kind of tree, not an avocado tree. It could be an avocado tree, but it doesn't have to be. And you graft in the avocado to the other tree. It's amazing, this concept of grafting. The reason why avocados are so dang expensive is because it takes so much work to grow an avocado. That's what it turns out, which is not a satisfying answer. I'm with you on this one. Did you know that you can grow six different kinds of apples on one tree? It's amazing. You just, you keep grafting in different kinds of apples to one tree. It's phenomenal. Did you know that now you can take a potato plant? I don't know if you've ever seen a potato plant, but just picture like a massive mound of root underneath the soil surface and you can graft in tomatoes and you can grow potatoes on the bottom and tomatoes on top. It's like nature's best mullet. It's ever grown. It's amazing. Grafting, like you graft in different things. Here's, Here's how grafting works. What you do is you'll take a plant. Um, Sometimes, and maybe for today, it will be the most fun to just say, this could be a plant that maybe it's attached to a root that isn't doing so well. It's diseased, but you really want to see it continue to grow. So you'll take off a shoot, something that you for sure still want to see, and you'll get the part that you want. And then what you have to do is, is you shave down to kind of a point, almost like a spear tip or a wedge on both sides. I'm going to put up on the screen, here's some different examples of what this looks like. But once you've got that done, then you go over to what's called the root stock, the the tree or the uh, the root that you want to grow into. And you make a wedge cut into that. And then what you'll do is you'll just slide the spear tip of your graft into the root stock. Um, This is now called the scion, the bud. Uh, For the car nerds out there, when Toyota was starting a whole new brand, they named it Scion because they were grafting in, here's something new we're doing, but it's the same old company. That's kind of cool. But the Scion now is grafted into the rootstock, and you'll either tape that or you'll use a special kind of wax to keep all the environmental factors, the water, the wet, out of there. So then, and the real magic of what's happening is just underneath the bark layer of both the rootstock and the Scion 
is something called the cambrium. And this is a really cool part of cell tissue in plants. It's, a, it's what a computer program would say. It's the unprogrammed software. It's the part of the plant that's just waiting to be told, what do you want me to do? You want more bark? I can become more bark. You want me to be more of the center tissue of the tree? I can do that too. What do you want me to become? And I'll become that. So in cutting the wedge on your scion and in cutting the wedge inside the bark of the tree or the rootstock, what you're doing is you're exposing this cambrium in both of them and you're putting them together. And now all of a sudden, this part of the tree that's going, what do you need? And this part of your scion or your bud that's saying, here's what I need. Now they just talk to each other freely. And all of a sudden, you got tomatoes growing on potatoes. I think they call it like a pot of tomato tree or something like that. It's, it's crazy. But you, like grafting, like that's how that works. You can take something that was attached to maybe a rotting or a decaying root, something that was doomed to die, and you can attach it to something that is destined to live. That's amazing, like horticulture. But do avocados have to be so expensive? <laughs> the other thing with, with this, with grafting, is that the elements have to be relatively genetically similar. Uh, if you try and take something like a rose bush and shove it into an orange tree, you're going to be working at that for a long time. You take a peach and a nectarine and a plum and an apricot, and put them all in the same rootstock. You got a tree doing some wild partying, let me tell you what. The story that we're gonna be in today in the book of Acts, I think is a story that loves this idea of grafting. It's a story that's just begging the question, how does this work? What are the necessary elements that are going on? And we've been going through the book of Acts for the last several months now. Today we find ourselves in Acts 15, and I'm thrilled because as we get to Acts 15, it sits uh, physically in the center of the book, but theologically, the whole point of the book of Acts is coming to a head right here in Acts 15. I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here to hear this today. This is a, a monumental story that's happening, which is hilarious because Acts 15 is really, it's like reading the meeting minutes of a meeting that happened 2,000 years ago. Like, it's not the most titillating story. What happened in this meeting, though, was totally life-changing for every single one of us in the room today. And so as we dive in, I, I just want to remind you some of the places that we've been so far in the book of Acts. Early on, we, just, we saw God doing something new. The location of his temple was now no longer in a physical building, but he was moving. His presence was now going to be in people. It was amazing. And it wasn't too long after that where then a huge shift happened because so far, when we read the story of Scripture, the whole thing, so much of it is focused on this group of people who are Jewish. And all of a sudden, Peter, one day, he's minding his own business, he's hungry, he goes up on a roof while he's waiting for somebody to make him a sandwich. He has this crazy vision from God where God says, hey, go find this Roman dude, definitely not Jewish. His name's Cornelius. His whole family wants to know the story of Jesus. And he goes and he talks to them, and this whole family responds to the love of God in a way that Peter was like, I thought this was a Jewish thing. But now all of a sudden, these other people are getting invited to this party. If you've been here the last couple weeks, we've met a couple other characters, one of them whose name is Saul. It will get changed to Paul in a little bit. Another one whose name is Barnabas. And they've been on these journeys the last couple weeks where they're stopping in these different towns all over Asia Minor, the Mediterranean, Turkey, 
sharing the story of Jesus and the love of God with people. And there are so many people who are not Jewish who are saying, this is the best story I've ever heard. Where do I sign up? And they keep reporting back to all these Jewish folks who have been a part of this story for a long time, the rootstock, saying, hey, we've got a whole bunch of new buds, a whole bunch of new scions that are wanting to jump into this thing. How does this work? And the story of Acts 15 is a story where they are trying to figure out their horticulture. Can this work? Do we have roses and tangerines? Or do we have apples and apples? So, with that being said, that's the backstory to what we're going to pick up in Acts 15. Okay, one other thing. If you're new to, like, if you're new to church or if you're new to scripture and reading, there will be so many things that we hit today that you will, like, roll your eyes and be like, why is the Bible so freaking weird all the time? Like, we're going to talk about circumcision a lot today, and you're like, this is so relevant. Like, why does this matter at all to anyone, and why did it matter then? And whether you're new to this, whether you've been reading this story for several years, there should be parts in this story that you go, this is just weird. And that's normal. You should feel that way about this. The invitation here is this. This is a story that was written 2,000 years ago in a particular culture where these things had a gravity to them. They meant something deep. So if we're going to understand the story, it's best not to roll our eyes and skip out the door and say, that just doesn't make sense, and to do the work to dig in and go, what was actually going on there? And I think if we can do that, we'll begin to see, man, I am swept up in the story in my own story. I'm a part of what was going on here. So without further ado, let's jump in. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Then certain individuals came down from Judea. And they were teaching the brothers, the Christians there, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Let me read those last four words again. You cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So when they came to Jerusalem... They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. So to make sure we're all working with the same story here, we've got a whole bunch of people who are not Jewish. They are not circumcised. And they're wanting to be grafted into this stock root of Judaism this story of Jesus that he's continuing. And there's a group of folks, of Jewish folks, these Pharisees who are very by the book. And they would say for everybody, if you want to be saved, you want to be a part of this tree, there are moves that you have to make. And the people on the other end of the line are going, okay, there's moves. Do we have to do all the moves? And especially the guys in the room are like, do we have to do like all the moves? Like how many moves are going on here? That's what's going on. And this debate starts to broil long enough they go, we got to take this up to company headquarters. (laughs) We got to go see the CEOs about this one because we're not getting anywhere in our discussion. So they send Saul, Paul, Barnabas, they send them down to Jerusalem. This is company headquarters. This is where the church is. And we're going to meet in a little bit a character that has been silent so far in the book of Acts. And he's an incredibly important character. His name is James. We're also going to meet a character who we've had a lot of interaction with. In just a moment, we're going to hear from a guy named Peter. These were some of Jesus' personal students, 
folks who had walked with him, who had learned directly from the source, and these were now the folks who were leading the church of this time. So when a squabble breaks out, let's go talk to the OGs and figure out how we're supposed to play this one. Let's continue reading. Verse six, the apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, my brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. Story of Cornelius. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of those disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we are able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The whole assembly was silent. They listened to Paul and Barnabas as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. Let's break there for a second. How do you practice discernment? How do you know what God wants? How do you know when you reach a crossroads in a debate, in a conversation that's sticky? How do you know these aren't just my ideas, this isn't just my dog in the fight? How, how do you come back to a place where you go, this is at the heart of God? This is how we know what decision to make in this place at this time, and here's what we're going to move forward with. This council at Jerusalem has been gathered together to figure out a really difficult question. So how are they going to play it? Peter kicks off the game. First off, Peter says, look, God's up to something here. God started it. (laughs) I was just minding my own business waiting for a sandwich, and all of a sudden he said, go talk to Cornelius. It's wild. And you've got Saul, who I'm sure is biting his tongue, saying, I was minding my own business just killing Christians, and I was on my way to Damascus, and all of a sudden I was blinded. And God said, hey, go talk to all these non-Jewish folks. God has started something. So they lean in. But there's more to what goes on here. Before we keep reading, I just want to circle back real quick. Peter has a really curious phrasing that he puts in here. He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? If you're Jewish, the term yoke, it means teaching. It's a a whole framework of teaching. So Peter's saying, you're taking all of Jewish law and you're telling all these non-Jewish people, do all these things. This is what will make you saved. It's what you do. Peter's going, man, there's not a single one of us that's been able to do that. We don't actually even believe that. We believe that we're saved by grace and faith in Christ alone, and we believe that's true for them too, right? I think everybody in the room starts to go, oh, man. So what place does action have? Does it matter what you do? How do you know what you're supposed to do? Because we know what we're supposed to do. Shouldn't we just ask them to do the same thing? You can feel the tension of like, what do we do here? Let's keep, oh, so the second thing then, sorry. The second step in this discernment process is experience. As Peter talks with Cornelius, as Saul and Barnabas are going all over the world, they're seeing this response happen in people who are not Jewish and they're coming back and all they're doing is sharing stories. Look, God told me to go there. 
He started it. I went there. I did what I was supposed to do. People responded. I experienced it. I've seen it. They will receive free grace just like we did, and they are. I saw Cornelius' family receive the Holy Spirit just like I did. Just experienced it. But the conversation, this discernment process, isn't quite done. And now, pipes in James. James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem at this time. So we'll pick it up in verse 13. After they finished speaking, Paul and Barnabas, James replied, my brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Simon, Simon Peter, Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the dwelling of David which has fallen. From its ruins, I will rebuild it and I will set it up so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord who has been making these things known from long ago. He just quoted a handful of things. Most of that is Amos 9. So if you're new to this, like ancient ruins, what just happened? <laughs> like he went off script. James is saying, hey, Amos, several hundred years ago, he mentioned that this Jewish nation, this temple, this palace, this people of God in these ruins, Jesus was going to come and he was going to raise them back. But even for Amos, hundreds of years ago, there was already a vision that the Gentiles, the Gentiles over whom my name has been called, they will be included in the rebuilding, in the work, in the story of what God will be up to. Hundreds of years ago, that was said. He's also weaving in some imagery from Isaiah and also from Leviticus, as we're about to see. So for James, he's sitting there stroking his very Jewish beard, hearing all these stories, going, but does it line up with the text? And I think if you want to practice discernment, one of the real gifts and comforts is we have a God who is unchanging. And we have a story that is trustworthy and true. And so as James is hearing all of these stories, as he's wondering how does all this work out, he is thinking back through, what do I know to be true and does it work? And he goes, Amos talked about it. Isaiah talked about it. Actually, like way old gangster, like Moses was talking about in Leviticus, which who's reading Leviticus for crying out loud? He's remembering all these things and going, son of a gun, this has been the story all along. But now we're going to get a really funny landing pad because if you remember, the question at the beginning was, don't all the dudes have to be circumcised if they want to be a part of this thing? So it seems like they're growing closer to the verdict of no, which is great. However, verse 19, therefore, James goes on, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from fornication, and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city, for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. And this last one, for many reasons, is, is, a, is a head scratcher. What? <laughs> you, we were talking about circumcision, now all of a sudden we're talking about strangled animals. Like, this is weird. Um, and what's going on here is actually James continuing to do some deep work. He's a good leader. 
I think if you read this too quickly, you can read this as like a roll of the eyes of like Jewish people for crying out loud. There always has to be rules. Like they just can't let these Gentiles get away without getting them somewhere. And I would submit to you, I think that James is just doing an incredible job holding his text and holding the situation and going, how does this work? And ultimately, what he begins to see is, where do you see these combinations of no idols, no fornication, no strangled animals or blood? Like, that's a really weird combination. (laughs) That's a very particular cocktail that comes up a couple times if you're Jewish. I mean, as he's saying those things right away, every Jewish person in the room goes, I know exactly where you're pulling that from. We hear that and we're like, you sound like a psychopath. (laughs) They're hearing that and going, oh, that's Leviticus 17 and 18, stealing actually from the story of Noah. And it's really beautiful. Now, if you're Jewish, this is pre-printing press. And so there were ways that they would seek to simplify how do we share the story of the Old Testament with each other? They had something called the Mishnah, but it was basically how do we simplify these stories? And I want to read for you the text of Noah, but then I want to tell you how they would simplify and translate to each other. Here's what this story means. Noah goes in his ark, flood covers the whole earth. Everything hits a massive reset button. He comes out of the ark on dry ground with his family and God makes a promise to him. Here's how that promise starts in Genesis chapter nine. God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you shall rest on every animal of the earth and on every bird of the air and on everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is blood. For your own lifeblood, I will surely require a reckoning. From every animal, I will require it. And from human beings, each one for the blood of another, I will require a reckoning of human life. Saying, go fill the earth. Make sure as you do that you have a respect for life everything sacred. And then there's this piece at the end about blood. Now, this is a culture where you're sacrificing animals often. You're eating animals often. If you're Roman, to strangle an animal to death actually wasn't that uncommon. To eat food that had animal blood in it actually wasn't that uncommon. If you're Jewish, massive no-no for a very long time. You don't, you don't do those things. And the reason is if you're Jewish, if you're gonna kill an animal, you kill it mercifully and quickly. Strangling does not work. And the blood that runs through an animal, the blood that runs through you and me, that is so precious. That is sacred. Do not eat that. That is special and set aside. So if you're Jewish and going, okay, I need to simplify this story so I can just say it to somebody because I don't have a printing press, here's what they're going to pull out. Number one, God and Noah. No idols. It's just him and us. So for James, he's looking back going, let's see, what was that teaching from Noah? As a reminder, this is the last covenant that was made before God started making promises only to the Jewish people. So I think James is going, what was the last promise he made to everybody? Like that included the Gentiles. It was this one. Okay, Gentile folks, no idols. The last promise that God made, it was between him and us. So no idols. 
Let's see, what else did God say when he made this promise to everybody? Well, the second thing, and if you were reading or hearing the Mishnah, they would say no fornication, as James says here. This, uh, this whole idea of be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Your sexuality matters. Guard it. Pay close attention to it. Seek God's heart for what that means for you and for him. That would be the second thing that they would pick out. And there would be a third thing that they would say, undeniably, this is what's going on in, in this covenant, this promise between God and everybody. Respect life. Don't eat flesh that has life in it. Don't eat blood. So James, as he's like, I'm sure just scratching his head and stroking his beard and holding his text, hearing Peter and Cornelius, hearing Paul and Barnabas and all of Turkey, he's going, is, does this line up? Culturally, the story I've been told, the culture that I've inherited, this doesn't work, but if I think through what God has been doing for thousands of years, dialing it all the way back to Noah, Actually, it turns out people have been grafted in for a long time. This is not just a Jewish rootstock. There's always been an invitation. There's always been a way for people to be a part of this. When you get into Leviticus 17 and 18, those are, those are stories, parts of Scripture that they would read in the synagogues. If you're Jewish, you still do this today. It's part of the Parsha reading that just happens every single Saturday in the synagogue. You read through 17 and 18, which are these instructions on, hey, nation of Israel, if you have folks who are not Jewish wanting to come and hang and celebrate with you and worship God, these are the chapters that tell you, here's what those folks need to do. And that's riffing off of this promise that God has made to Noah. It's amazing. So, what do we do with all of this? This third step of discernment is scripture. Does it line up with what God is doing? One quick note on this, and I think James would be the first in line to tell you, my Bible teachers, they taught me one thing. Culturally and historically, what we receive sometimes needs to be put through the filter of rereading what we've received. That is an important step, and James is doing a beautiful job here of showing us how to do that. So, hopefully, at this point, what may have seemed confusing or con uh, contradictory is now beginning to make sense. And I want to make sure I'm very clear about this. Being grafted, this gift of Jesus, this thought of your life and my life being incorporated into the story and the love of God, that is free. And that is unconditional. And it is offered and opened to you and to me all the time, every time. We leave behind this old root that we've been connected to. I don't know that there's anyone who would say, yeah, the tree of humanity, the, th the things that humans do, like, man, that tree is perfect. I can't wait to be connected to that forever because it's going to last. It's a root that's decaying. It's a root that's got a problem, a disease. And thank God that the way that horticulture works is that you can take a bud or a shoot or a life from a root that is decaying and you can graft it in to something that will never die. Something like the story and the love of God. That is free. You do not take a scion or a bud and say, here's how I need you to change before I will put you here. All that thing does is exactly what it is. It just acts like itself. 
The other beautiful thing is that as it's grafted in, it would be a horrible disservice to the scion for the root to just be like, ah, sorry, figure it out, do whatever you want to do up there. It would defeat the whole point. The bud would never grow. It wouldn't know what to do. That cambrium, it, it needs a signal. It needs direction. How am I supposed to grow? It's free and unconditional to be grafted in. Welcome to the love of God and the family of God. You're here. You made it. Do you need to be circumcised? Absolutely not. Does it have anything to do with how you talk or how you act or what you do? Absolutely not. It's free, the grace of God through faith in Jesus. And as anything that's grafted in understands, you need to receive something. You need to start receiving nutrients, these early signals. And James, who I think is a great leader, and for the like yummy mmm that just hits the rest of the room as he says this, as they realize, yeah, we need to tell them something. Like as they become grafted in, now what do we tell them to do? How do we help them understand how to begin growing in the love of God? The thing that they come back to is, when was the last promise that God made that included everybody? And what did he say? To be grafted in is free. And the first nutrients that begin to flow are these. Do business with the idols in your life. What are the things that just tempt you to bow down? The things that draw you away from having God be the one and only thing that you care about in your life, that matters. You are grafted in, that is done as you begin to grow. Where are the idols in your life and do business with them? If that doesn't stick you to the wall, I don't know what does. There's room for me to grow there, for sure. Second thing, your sexuality matters. In a world of today, this comes in so many shapes and sizes and none of us are immune. The way that abuse rages in the world around us, it is affecting our sexuality. The way that pornography rages in the world around us, it affects our sexuality. There are so many places where your sexuality is being informed by the culture around and I think in this promise that God is making, he's saying that is a special gift that I gave to you. Seek my heart in that. That is a hard thing to offer over in hope to the God of the universe. And there is an invitation waiting as you begin to grow. And then the last thing, do you respect life? The way that you speak to people, the way that you think about people, the way that you pay attention to the food that you eat and the respect and the honor that you give to it, the way that you just walk outside and revel in a sunrise. How do you begin to grow if you're grafted into this rootstock of God's story? Here's three. God alone. Your sexuality matters. Respect life. And so, the rest of Acts 15, they write a letter and they give it back to Paul and Barnabas and they say, hey, go share this with every church. Everybody who's new, everybody who wants to get in on this party, they're in by grace and faith, through Jesus, hallelujah, that's good news. And then as they're in, this is what the Cambria is saying, it's time to grow. Here's the first step. I'm gonna invite the band out as I land the plane on a couple thoughts. It could be easy to think that the New Testament is this restart button on the story of God where he's doing something so new and so different that he tosses out everything that's come before and that could not be further from the truth. The best work we can do 
as we read scripture is to follow the example of this group of people. It's to hold it all up as a consistent story. We have a God who is constant. We have a human story and a human understanding that is all over the map. How do we align to what he's been about? It can all help point us in the direction of the heart of God. And what do we find when we hold it up? I don't know if you're hearing this, but do you find rules? Do you find shame and guilt? I hope not. I hope like as we would see a bud, we would say, man, it would just be cruel for the root not to begin to offer, here's how you grow. I think when you look closely, I think you find that you're being invited to graft into the family of God. A rich history, strong roots, a tree that's not gonna tip over on you, but one that has been weathered by storm after storm. Something that can hold you up. It can maybe be better said as you're being invited to be grafting into God himself, the source of love, something that will help you understand who you really are, and it's freely offered. The story does something amazing. It doesn't tell us how Gentiles were grafted in in this movement of Christians in the first century, but it reminds us that humanity has always been invited to a with God life, to his love. Humanity has often been a bud taken from a diseased root and put into a root that is healthy so that what once what was doomed now has a future. If you're hearing this story and you've never responded to this invitation from God to connect to him, today the invitation comes to you afresh. Do you want to be with him? Do you want to grow in him? It's a free gift that will ultimately lead to life to the full. You have never known a love like this. And if you're somebody who has been responding to this for a long time, know that these first three invitations to grow, it certainly does not stop there. And actually those first three fundamentals, they are good ones to come back to over and again. We'll take some time now to respond to this story in song. And perhaps you want to consider one of these three things, your worship of God alone and the idols that do vie for your attention. Maybe it's your own engagement with your sexuality. Goodness knows we all have battle scars there. How do you offer that and bring that to the Lord and say, what do you want of me here? Maybe it's a focus on life and engaging what is beautiful and sacred in the world around you in a way that you respect at a different level any number of things, a sunrise, food, people, whatever it is, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are invited into this story. It's been happening for thousands of years and it's still being written today. The grace of God is free. Your spot on the root is available and open now. Graft in with him. Let him do his work. And as you do, as you understand the story, as he grows things in you, know that it's, there's so much more to this than just the grafting, but the growing is the adventure of a lifetime. For those who are able, let's stand and respond together.